We are continuing our series that we've been doing, going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been looking at uh, all of the different ways in which Jesus will give a particular teaching. Uh, Usually a part of it comes from the law of Moses, but then also it'll have something uh, with the, the common understanding and interpretation of his day. And then Jesus will give his own understanding of that teaching. And his understanding is going to uh, find a way to get to the heart of it, to internalize the teaching. So, for example, you have the teaching like, don't commit murder. And pretty much everyone would agree, murder is not a good thing to do. But what Jesus says is, I want you to take that, and I want it not only to uh, impact what your hands do with respect to how you treat others, like murdering them, but rather I want it to impact your heart and your words. I want you not to be angry. I want you to not use abusive words and harmful speech in the way that you speak about others because the person that you're talking to, no matter who they are, is someone who is created intentionally in the very image of God, and we should treat them as such, even in the things that we say. And so Jesus takes ideas like, don't commit adultery. That's something you do with your body. But he says, I want you to not lust, which is something that goes internal. And so he's trying to transform us from the inside out. And the Sermon on the Mount is a powerful way to do that. Um, last week, we talked about the idea of, uh, of non-retaliation, of not seeking vengeance. And I mentioned that the last two things that Jesus mentions— which are not getting revenge, not retaliating, and loving your enemies, it's really hard to preach one of those without also stepping on the other one because the reason that you don't seek revenge is because even your enemy, Jesus calls you to love. And so it's really, it's a lot harder to seek revenge on a person that you have decided that you are going to love. If you don't love that person, then revenge is very natural and very easy to want to get. But the more that we can broaden our understanding of who we are to love, the easier it is to follow the teachings of Jesus. However, broadening who it is that we love is one of the most difficult challenges that we face. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, this is verse 43 of chapter 5, Matthew, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. All right, so right here, Jesus brings up persecutors again. And he's already talked about people who suffer persecution in in the Beatitudes. You remember that, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people uh, speak uh, all manner of of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, uh, for so they persecuted the the prophets who are before you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Like you, You go through that and you find out that Jesus is preparing them for the idea that the kingdom of heaven is going to be particularly for those who suffer this type of persecution. Now, one of the ways that you could suffer persecution is to respond with hatred and insult and even violence in retaliation against your persecutors, but that's really not the way of Jesus. Remember, Jesus, even while dying on the cross, is saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And as disciples called to carry our crosses and follow after him and imitate him, That's going to radically change the way that we respond to our enemies. Um, Jesus is going to tell us, rather than hating them and seeking revenge, actually to love them. Um, That idea of loving your neighbor, it's a beautiful idea. And if everyone would do that, the world would be a much better place. Uh, It comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And when you read through Leviticus 19, there's a number of descriptions as to what that's going to look like. One of the laws, I love this law in ancient Israel, 
it's uh, for the, the fields when you're harvesting, you're not supposed to harvest all the way to the edge of your own field. Leave the edges and the borders in, uh, w- without having harvested that. And also, if you drop something, don't pick it up. And also, don't go through your field a second time to see if you missed anything. Instead, leave all of that there. Not for it to go to waste, but in case there is someone who is poor, and in case there is a stranger or a foreigner in your land, then they are able to, uh, to glean from that as well. That is a, is a way of making sure that people even who might not have had a good harvest can still have something to eat. We see in the book of Ruth, Ruth, who was a, a poor foreigner widow, taking care of her widowed uh, mother-in-law, she's able to benefit tremendously because of that teaching. She's able to go onto the field of Boaz and reap. And so there's a lot of good that comes from it. But there's actually a really important phrase that's used in it. The people that you're leaving it for are for the poor, but then also for the stranger or the foreigner. That's an important idea because as the teaching in Leviticus 19 goes down, you eventually get to this idea that says, take no grudge uh, against your countrymen uh, and don't, don't retain anger towards them, but love your neighbor as yourself. And as you read that, everyone likes the idea of loving their neighbor as themselves, but what becomes difficult is the question, well, who then is my neighbor? Uh, Jesus is actually asked that question at one point. Uh, okay, well, you say we got to love our neighbor, but what does that actually mean? Who, who is my neighbor? I can draw that circle pretty narrow if I want to, and I can make it like just the people who live within, you know, a five-minute walk of me. If I just have to love them, you know, I guess it depends on who your neighbor is, but ultimately that seems manageable. Once that circle starts getting bigger, though, it becomes harder and harder to do. So we sometimes, we don't want to define neighbor necessarily as the people who live near us, but maybe the people who worship with us. You guys are my neighbors. You know what? Some of you might be you know, a, little, a little off, but for the most part, <laughs> you guys are pretty easy to love. <laughs> Just kidding. You guys are very easy to love. Uh, you can define neighbor in such a way that it's pretty easy to do. Uh, Jesus, when he's asked, who is my neighbor? He doesn't just say the people who live close to you. He doesn't say the people who worship at the same synagogue as you or the people who are like-minded with respect to your religious views. He doesn't even just say your own countrymen, which is how I think a lot of people would have interpreted it. If you go back to Leviticus 19, you can can find that where it says your own countrymen. uh, Don't hold a grudge against your own countrymen and and the sons of your people. And so you you can interpret it that way. But remember, there's also that phrase when it's talking about the field that says, for the foreigner also. That at least is a hint that this idea is going to expand even beyond Israel to include even foreigners. When Jesus is asked the question, well, who then is my neighbor? He then tells a really, really famous parable about a good Samaritan. And the Samaritan is someone who they would have not only not considered a neighbor, they would have considered an enemy. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you a story about a good Samaritan. And he tells a story about a guy who's beaten by robbers and thrown to the side of the road. And then his, his very obvious neighbors walk near him, a, a rabbi and a, and a priest, like people who should be respected, people who are of the same religious views of him, people who are fellow Israelites, like the most neighborly neighbor you could imagine walks down the road and they don't help him. But then a Samaritan who is the enemy walks down the road and does help him. And he sacrifices for him. And he doesn't let that word enemy keep him from demonstrating love. He shows love even across borders and even across uh, all the social barriers that would be in place there. And when Jesus finishes the story, he asks, so who then is the neighbor? 
Is it the one who looks like you and worships like you and is from the same place as you? Or is it the one who showed compassion? And the answer is the one who showed compassion. And even with that, if you leave it right there, you could say, okay, so neighbor is uh, the person who shows compassion to me and helps me when I'm in need. Well, that's also pretty easy. You know, even if they're a traditional enemy, if they love me, show compassion, and help me, then, then they could be my neighbor. But the very last line of that parable, Jesus flips it when he says, so go and do likewise. What he tells them is, don't be the one who's waiting for a neighbor to come to you and show you compassion. You go show love and compassion to others. You go be the neighbor, and you be the neighbor to your enemy. You be the neighbor to everybody. That way, you can love your, your neighbor even when your neighbor proves to be an enemy. Even when your neighbor is not like you, you are still going to love. Because the ethic of Jesus is that the love that we demonstrate is a love that isn't picking and choosing you, 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 not you, not you, you. The love that we demonstrate is for neighbor, fellow worshiper, even enemy. It's, it, it goes across all of those barriers. And that's the thing that's difficult to do. And that's the way Jesus wants to expand their understanding of Leviticus 19. Not just loving your neighbor, but so defining neighbor to mean loving even your enemy. Well, what about the person who who's, does cruel things to you? You respond with good to them. What about the person who persecutes you? You pray for them. You respond to their evil with something that can overcome their evil. Um, earlier in Matthew 39, uh, Jesus tells them not to resist the evil person or the evil. And I think sometimes we can read that as though you do nothing. You just, you're passive. In fact, there are, there are people who are pacifists. They, they believe you, you be passive. And I think, I think Jesus isn't necessarily calling us to be passive here. I think, in fact, he's very much calling us to be active. He doesn't want us to resist evil. He wants us to overcome evil. And how do you overcome? It's not by being passive. It's by being active. But what you're active in isn't violence and retaliation and spreading more hatred and enmity. You're active in demonstrating and in showing the love of God. Jesus wants us to be very active in our response to evil, but he wants us to overcome evil, not by just adding more evil or more uh, hatred to it, but by adding love to it, something that evil doesn't see very often and something that hatred doesn't often experience. You, ex- you show and you demonstrate the love of Christ, and that is how you actively combat evil. That is how, to quote Paul, you overcome evil with good. Sometimes it's super hard, though. Sometimes it might even seem impossible. There's a a book that, uh, that I would recommend, uh, it's called The End of Memory. It's by Miroslav Volf, who is a, a theologian. He was at Fuller Theological Seminary. Now I think he's at Yale. Um, but when he was a younger man, he grew, he grew up in Croatia, uh, which was uh, under uh, yeah, the, the rule of Yugoslavia. But uh, he grew up in a communist regime. And in the 1980s, he had uh, received his Ph.D. from a Western school. He had married an American. His father was a Christian. And all of those things made him highly suspicious. Uh, they wanted to find fault with him, and they did whatever they could. The government tried to find fault with him. Um, he, was, uh, he was compelled into mandatory military service. And uh, while he was there, even people in his own unit were told to keep eyes on him. They, were even, they would even 
offer him like Western magazines and they would try to spark conversations with him to get him to say something that they could use against them and then turn into their superiors so that he could be punished. They put him in a small room to do his job that was bugged. Uh, They had little microphones in there in case he said or did anything that uh, could be used against him. And eventually he was arrested and they had a stack of papers on anything perhaps suspicious that he had done. And he ended up going through hours and hours and hours for days, weeks, and months of intense interrogation that utilized pretty much every kind of psychological torture you could imagine. Them lying about them, threatening him, yelling, like all of these things. And most of it was done by a particular captain that he calls in the book Captain G. He doesn't give us more information than that. But it's called Captain G. And every time he saw him enter, it filled him with dread because he had no power and this person had all authority. He could threaten him with prison. He could threaten him with death. And he had no way to defend himself. The things that they were saying against, about him weren't even true. And, and it, was, it was a period of his life that he describes as being just absolute misery. He grew to really... I, I, There's no other word to describe Captain G than just an enemy. And I think his most natural instinct in the world would have been to hate his enemy. But he's also a follower of Jesus. In trying to square those two things, it was an intense dilemma. And I want to read a paragraph that he writes that I think is is powerful and something that, uh, that, that stays in my mind whenever I read these passages from the Sermon on the Mount. He says this about evil. He says, To triumph fully... Evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetuated. The second victory, when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory didn't infuse it with new life. In my situation, I could do nothing about the first victory of evil, but I could prevent the second. Captain G would not mold me into his image. Instead of returning evil for evil, I would heed the Apostle Paul and try to overcome evil with good. After all, I myself had been redeemed by the God who in Christ died for the redemption of the ungodly. And so once again, now in relation to Captain G, I started walking and stumbling in the footsteps of the enemy-loving God. The idea there is that I am faced with evil. And here's what I could do. I could either let that evil die with me, or I could infuse it with new life and make it bigger and grander by returning it on the person who prepared. And and when you do that, then evil gets turned on you, and then evil grows, and evil takes on uh, more power. And Instead of just letting it die. And what he says is, when you just let it die, that's how you take on the image of the cross where Jesus took on the evil of this world and let it die with him rather than turning it around and sending it back out to everyone else he took on the evil and let evil die and when you act like that you're being molded into the image of the firstborn son you're being molded into the image of God rather than being molded into the image of your enemy I mean what happens when your enemy does something evil to you And then you respond to do something evil right back. Who has guided your actions there? It's not God. It's not the enemy-loving God who in Christ died for the ungodly and redeemed you. No, you're letting your enemy dictate how you live and how you respond. And for him, and I think this is the message of Jesus, and it's the challenge for every one of us, 
don't let our enemies determine how we love and how we act. You let the enemy-loving God who gave his life for you determine that. And that's a tough thing to do. That's a constant battle. But it is, I think, part of the very essence of what the Sermon on the Mount and the very kingdom of heaven is calling us to. What I'd like to do uh, in the lesson from here until the close is talk about seven reasons why we should give up revenge and strive, probably stumbling along the way, to love our enemies. And the first one is that it is a real way in which we actualize our faith in God. Because the logic that the New Testament uses uh, for why we don't exact our own revenge is because we are trusting in God to be the ultimate judge rather than ourselves. And if you don't trust that God will turn the wrongs right, if you don't trust God to be the, act, the, the, the perfect judge, then you could take upon yourself the responsibility of judge, and you could be the one who tries to exact revenge. And we probably, we talked about it last week when we talked about the idea of lex talionis, the eye for an eye, we're actually pretty bad at that. We're not good at it. it calculating the perfectly measured response to equal the amount of evil we suffered and to inflict it on others. Uh, that's not one of our skill sets as humans. We're too emotional. We get too angry. We, we often feel the pain that we experience in a more real way than the pain we inflict, and that makes it seem like it's worse. And so when we try to replicate that, we end up expanding it. And so all of those reasons are reasons to let God be the judge. But in order to do that, You have to believe that he will be the perfect judge. And you have to believe that even if you suffer in this life, there is a a new world coming in which through the resurrection, our enemy death will ultimately be defeated and the wrongs that we suffer will be made right. And in order to live that way now, you have to truly trust that. And it's hard to do. But that's why letting God be the judge is a way of actualizing your faith. It, it takes something that we say we believe. Yes, God is judge. Yes, uh, we, will, we will live forever in heaven and we'll have uh, all of the, the wrongs of this world will be made right and the, the suffering we experience now isn't worthy to be compared with the glory that we will experience on that day. We say all of those words. But if you're unwilling to really let God take control of the way that you treat your enemies, then you're not actualizing those words. If you want to make them a real part of your obedient experience of God, then let him be in charge of vengeance and you be in charge of demonstrating the love that Christ offered on the cross. So number one, one of the benefits of not responding with revenge and learning to love our enemies is that it actually puts the faith that we know we should have in God into real action in this life. Number two is it's a way of imitating God rather than our enemies. I love that expression in the quote that I read earlier where he says, Captain G would not mold me into his own image. I mean, that's what our enemies try to do when they try to get you to, when they do an evil and then you respond in kind, you're becoming more like them rather than more like God. And we are called to be people who live more and more like God and are conformed to the image of his son. Number three When you actualize your faith and when you're conformed into God's image rather than the image of your enemy, you're demonstrating to the world God's goodness. And that's part of what the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to do, to be the light of the world or the salt of the earth or the city that's on a hill. When you act like everyone else, every 
one wants to get revenge. That's, a, that's like the most innate human response. Watch two-year-olds. With one of them takes a toy from the other one, what's the other one going to do? He's going to seek revenge almost immediately. That, that is such a natural response. But it doesn't demonstrate something that would be light in darkness. It doesn't stand out. It might make a great movie where the person who suffers at the beginning gets his revenge at the end. And we sometimes really root for that. But when you do that, all you're doing is perpetuating the evil that has led to the downfall of the world all around us. And you're not doing anything different than the Gentiles or the tax collectors, as Jesus is going to say here in just a minute. When you act like everyone else, you don't fulfill the call of the Sermon on the Mount. But if you try to actually live in the love of God, even in the way that you treat others, even in the way when you treat the people who are the hardest to treat that way, that's how the light of God's goodness will shine forth. Number four, this is just a math, uh, this is just mathematical, but uh, you lessen the amount of evil that's in the world when you don't return it. You know, hatred breeds hatred and evil breeds evil. That happens all the time. But if you, if you take two plus two, you're going to get four. It's going to get higher. But if you refuse to add your two to it, then it does not increase. It will not grow. And actually, with evil over time, if you refuse to give it new fuel and new life, I believe it will begin to decrease. But that starts with you making that decision that you're not going to multiply evil. You're going to let it die with you. And when you do that, the world itself becomes less evil. Uh, Number five, you uniquely share in something special with Jesus when you suffer and don't retaliate. Because that's the very experience Jesus had. And if you want to know Jesus, sharing in his experiences is a very real way to do that. Um, You know... It's one thing to to suffer, or it's one thing to go through something and feel like you're alone. But when you know that you're going through something that Jesus himself experienced in a very similar way, then you actually connect with him in that way. It's just like any relationship you have with someone. Shared mutual experiences can help bond you together. And I think the same thing is true with Jesus. If you read 1 Peter chapter 1, or chapter 2, there's a beautiful depiction of what it means to follow in the steps of Jesus. And the description that's given there is, while suffering, he uttered no threats. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. It's like while people were doing their worst to him, he responded to it not by repeating their words back to them. When he was dying on the cross, he was saying, Father, forgive them, rather than, I'm going to destroy all of you foolish, sinful, ignorant people. Like, he didn't respond with threats and hate. He demonstrated a better way. And when you can live into that, you and Jesus are now sharing something special. That's the logic Jesus uses earlier about the other prophets. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 12, talking about persecution, he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. So that's a way of remembering your faith and, and putting it into action. But then also he says, And for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You get to share with Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the great prophets of old. You get to share with Jesus himself in a special bond of fellowship when you suffer in the same ways that he did. Number six, we overcome evil. Remember, this is a common expression, but you can't put out fire with fire. It won't work. If you want to overcome fire, you need something else to put it out. You need water or something like that to put it out. What happens with evil is 
when you receive it and you respond in kind, you've just added to the flame. When you receive it passively, I think you also uh, aren't, uh, aren't overcoming anything. You're just slowly letting it fester and eat you up. But when you are active in your fight with evil, only you're responding to it with good, that's how Paul says you actually end up overcoming it. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You fight the evil that's in the world with good, and that's how you actually begin to overcome it. And then finally, number seven, I think this is an important one. Um, When we give up the need to hate our enemies, when we give up the need to seek retribution, when we give up the need to always make things feel right, even though that doesn't make them right. I mean, you know the idea of two wrongs don't make a right. It feels like it will, but even exacting revenge doesn't make things right. When you give up the need to do that, you can finally experience a new kind of peace that doesn't grab hold of your life and drag it in a, in a painful direction. Um, there's a book, uh, another book I was uh, reading uh, recently called uh, Broken April, and there's this description of it. It talks about a lot of blood feuds and, uh, and families who would get caught in a blood feud with another family, where this family would kill someone of this family, and then in order to make that right, this family had the responsibility to pay that debt by killing someone of this family. But once that happened, this family had to kill someone of this family, and this, and then it leads to like this never-ending cycle of retribution, of retaliation, of violence, and bloodshed. And There's a lot that the book says about it, but there's one point where uh, someone is describing walking through a city with all of these blood feuds, and you can tell who experienced the most recent death and who now owes someone else death. And you can look at them by looking at their fields. Because if a field is cultivated and someone's been working in it, then that means that family has experienced the most recent death. And they're not afraid of having to experience another one because they're the ones who owe death to the other family. And so they can go out there freely. They can work in their field. There's no fear. There's no, uh, there's no, uh, uh, you know, worry that they're going to be, so they can go out and they can cultivate their field. But if you see a field that is not cultivated, that's a family who's done the most recent killing. And now they're, they're hiding up inside and they're, they're trying to make sure that they're afraid to go out there and work. And he says, you end up with this conflict. You can either have corn or you can have vengeance. And it's pulling you. You can either go out there and get, live your life and do the thing that needs to be done. Or you can go and get the vengeance that's expected of you to get. And it can pull people and in, in, it makes it a difficult choice for people. And I think so often we can find ourselves, you can either let it go and find some peace, have some corn. Or you can keep holding on to the vengeance and you can keep this cycle and this downward spiral going. And God is offering us through the cross a way out, a way to imitate him, a way to share with Jesus, a way to overcome the evil that's in the world, and a way to let go of the burden of needing to exact revenge. You don't need to, and it won't make the world better. Hating your enemy will not improve you, it won't improve your enemy, and it won't improve the world. And I think we've done a lot throughout human history to evidence the fact that we've done every kind of revenge and retaliation you could imagine, and the world hasn't gotten that much better because of it. What if Jesus was given a shot? Well, we can't determine what the rest of the world's going to do, but I think we can try it among ourselves. I think you can think about who is your enemy. 
I don't know what image or person you just got in your mind. Maybe it's an actual person you know. Maybe it's just a group of people you see on the news that tells you bad things about them. I don't know who it is that you're thinking about. But what if, instead of letting that hatred drive you, and, and you might not say, well, it's not hatred. I just think only bad things about them and only say bad things about them. Well, okay, you can redefine hatred however you want to. But the idea is don't don't let those negative feelings that you have towards them be what drives you and motivates you in your life. Let go. And let the cross and the love of Christ demonstrate and impact how it is you want to treat others from this point forward. And when you do that, you'll be a whole lot more like your Father who's in heaven, who sends the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And he shines the sun down on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, great. But so does everyone, right? Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Um, He wants us to be different. And this is one of the most radical ways we can be. Don't let hatred win. Overcome hatred with love. That's the whole message of the cross. And if we can help you do that, if we can help you experience the love that God has for you, having your sins washed away in baptism, naming Jesus as as Lord of your life and living for him from this point forward, please let that be known. Uh, If you you are experiencing a grudge or hatred that you can't seem to let go of, we would love to be able to help you in any way that we can. Uh, There are some elders in the back you'll be able to talk to in that room right there. But let's make the decision. We're at least going to try to move in the direction probably stumbling along the way of giving up hatred and letting love rule us. And if we can help you, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.